Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. This is a standalone recording from our first Faith and Culture Forum. These forums are aimed at furthering the conversation on hard topics at the intersection of faith and culture. Our guest speaker was Caleb Kaltenbach, pastor and founder of the Messy Grace Group. Caleb shared his story and how followers of Jesus can hold compassion and conviction together as we love people who are different from us, particularly our LGBTQ family, friends, and neighbors. Thanks for listening. Um, I thought I would just wear this uh, t-shirt so we could all be on the same page as we go into the weekend. Um, if, if you don't like this shirt, if this triggers you, that's on you. That's not on me. Um, I'm rooting for the good side. One safe person in here. Hey, uh, like he said, my name is, uh, my name is Caleb and I live in Los Angeles because my family and I enjoy not having money and, um, you know, do get to travel around a lot. Uh, do get to hang out with different people, so that's a lot of fun. Um, my wife and I, um, you know, we when we first got married, we tried to immediately have children because we were insane, and we tried, we tried for about two years. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't have kids. I mean, seriously, and so uh, we kind of both went into a depression. Um, I threw myself into my work, became a workaholic. That is obviously not good, but she was much more destructive, and she started watching Twilight and Hugh, Hugh Grant movies over and over and over again, and ain't nobody got time for that. So I said, we're going to get you pregnant one way or another. Um, you know, so we went to a fertility clinic. We got pregnant on our first try with Joel, on our second try with Rachel. Um, I love them both, but when we found out that we were pregnant with Joel, I could not wait to get to the hospital. I knew what to expect because I had seen the movies. I knew that when he came into the world, there'd be this epic underscoring John Williams Star Wars music, light from heaven shining down. I knew that, um, that, that he would come out pristine clean, would grab my finger, and with perfect pronunciation would say the word father. That is not what happened. We got to the hospital and everything went great until the pain hit my wife. And she became somebody that I had never exchanged vows with. I tried to put my hand on her shoulder to comfort her. And she looked at me and her eyes were like glowing red. And she said, don't you touch me right now. And I'm like, all right, Linda Blair, Emily Rose. Um, we need an old priest and a young priest in room nine. And then they gave her drugs. She went back to loving God and others at that point. And... When it was time for my son to come into the world and I saw him, my expression was this to, oh. It's like, you got to put him back in. He needs to cook some more. He's not done. He came out and he was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. Okay, he had gunk on him I had never seen. I didn't know that the human head could like just change shapes from uh, circularish to ovalish to square to triangularish and uh, rectangularish all at the same time. I had no clue, okay? He made horrible noises, like he was some kind of universal monster movie figure or something. They wrapped him up in a white blanket and gave him to me. And if you get to know me, you'll find out real quick that I always, that sometimes I don't have a filter. This was one of those times the nurses asked me, what do you think? And I looked at him, and my first words about my son were, he looks like a turtle. 
and my daughter looked like this big red juicy ladybug. And if you had been there, dude, you would have said that was messy. And you'd be right. Looked like a B-rated horror movie when they were done. It was messy. But in that moment, something happened. This, this love came from nowhere for my kids. And I just knew in this moment that no matter what happened, no matter how messy they were, I would never stop loving them. No matter what they did to me, and trust me, my children have done things to me, okay? Okay, they, they have taken my money. Okay, they take my food. They wake me up in the morning. They bring home germs. Um, before children, I used to look like Zac Efron. And then I had children, and this happened right here. Okay, so, so understand this. It doesn't matter, though, because I love my kids. And with what we're talking about tonight, I want to begin by saying this. That's how God feels about every single one of you. Here's what we're really good at as humans. We are really good at labeling each other by the perceived messiness we see in somebody else, categorizing people, and defining people by their messes or their mistakes, by their hangups or by their habits. But when you follow Jesus, here's the great thing, okay? He looks past these false definitions, okay? He takes you out of the categories and says, that doesn't resemble your value as a human being, okay? And he rips off the labels that lie, and he says, that's my child. And I don't care what other people say. I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. That's what I believe God feels about all of us. And that's why, more than anything, I love following Jesus. When I follow Jesus, I don't have to try to figure out my identity. I don't have to try to label myself. I don't have to even defend my identity. My identity is secure in him. And he protects it, and that allows me to be an ordinary human being, through whom which God can do extraordinary things. And the same is true with all of you. Now, we're talking about messy people, and I want you to notice that the first two letters of the word messy are M-E, me, okay? If you're listening to me, then you need to remember that. You, me, everybody in here is a mess. Look at, look at the person beside you on the right. Look at the person on the right. Look at the person on the left. Look behind you, real quick. Look behind you. Look behind you. Some of you are not obeying. You see this? You see? All these people around you are jacked up. They got issues. Some of you are invited here. You're like, wow, I'm so glad you brought me here tonight. But it's true. Every single person is messed up. Every single person has messes. And all of us, some of the times, we get wrongly labeled as having messes. Some of us, we just don't want to acknowledge our messes. We don't think anybody else sees it, but they do. Before we go any further, I also want to acknowledge this. I want to acknowledge what we're going to talk about tonight. I'm going to be talking a little bit here, and then we're going to have a Q&A. Please don't leave. We're going to have a break, but please don't leave in between the two because the Q&A is where we're really going to talk about uh, some interesting things in your questions. Um, but here's the deal, okay? I want to acknowledge that within this room, we have a wide variety of people that believe different things, right? We have different experiences. We have people who aren't sure. We have people who maybe don't identify as a Christian, but somebody invited us, and we thought it'd be cool to come. 
And if it's your first time in this church, I'll help you all join them this weekend sometime. This is a great church for you to attend. Okay, so I just want to acknowledge that. So I'm not trying to single anything out. The only thing that I can offer you in terms of what I think is my perspective, okay? Because I feel like to some degree, I was raised in one world and now I'm operating in several different. And really what I want to do is I want to be a bridge in so many ways between Christians and between people who relate or identify as LGBTQ. So let me tell you a little bit about my story. Um, I grew up in Columbia, Missouri, in Kansas City. Um, <coughs> my uh, parents were both professors at the University of Missouri, Columbia. And uh, they, they taught at other schools there, like Stevens College and so on and so forth. Um, when I was two years old, they divorced. And my mom and dad, separately of one another, went into same-sex relationships. My dad was in several different uh, relationships or friendships, never had a monogamous partner, but my mom uh, met a woman named Vera who was a psychologist. They moved to Kansas City uh, where they entered into a 22-year relationship until Vera died of cancer. And, and so my whole childhood, I was raised uh, in the LGBTQ community and by activist parents. My mom and her partner um, were on the local board of directors for GLAAD. I grew up going to um, clubs and bars and house parties and campouts and even marching in pride parades. I remember this one pride parade I marched in. At the end of it, uh, I was in elementary school. All these quote-unquote Christians, we're going to put quotations there for a reason, were holding up signs saying, God hates you, there's no room for you in the kingdom. And when people from my mom's parade would try to go dialogue with them, they would get sprayed with water and urine, saying, this is what Jesus thinks of you. And I remember looking at my mom and saying, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. If you are not like them, they will not like you. I remember one of my mom's young friends um, uh, named Lewis, uh, who died of AIDS when I was a kid. Um, Lewis was this young, tall, athletic, just think of the opposite of me. That's what he looked like, okay? <laughs> He looked like Floyd Mayweather in his prime. And he ended up getting HIV, which turned into AIDS. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody die from AIDS. It's one of the worst deaths you could ever imagine. I ended up going to see Lewis before he died with my mom. And he was shivering underneath like nine blankets. He was literally a shell of the, per of the man that he used to be. Physically, he was. But his Christian family was there. But they were lined up against the back wall of the hospital room like they were waiting for a firing squad. They didn't want to touch him. They didn't talk to him. They didn't serve him. But they had their big old KJV Bibles out reading them. And I went over and gave him a hug and gave him a kiss and told him goodbye. And I asked my mom, why were they acting like that? She said, Caleb, how many times do I have to tell you? Christians hate gay people. If you are not like them, they will not like you. And it was at that moment where I said, I thought to myself, I hate Christians. Because, and, and also, I thought, I don't care much for Jesus. I would never want to follow him because if Christians are this bad and he's their leader, I can't imagine how horrible Jesus is. And so by the time I got to be 16, I was partying it in high school, living it up, sneaking out at night, that kind of thing. But I got invited by this other high schooler in my school to go to his um, uh, Bible study that he led for high schoolers. And I thought, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to go, 
and I'm going to be a pretend Christian, a ninja Christian, and I'm going to learn about their faith and dismantle it. And as you can tell, that turned out real well. It was a great plan. Um, I hadn't owned a Bible, so I grabbed this uh, old, dusty, revised, whatever version like my dad had. And at the age of 16, I had never really stepped foot in a Christian household before, much less a, a conservative Christian household, an evangelical household, or a Baptist, Christian church, whatever you want to say, I hadn't. And if, if, I'm going to describe their house. If this describes your house, please don't be offended by what I'm getting ready to say. If this describes your house, more power to you. I guarantee you will be 10 people ahead of me in the line to, in the line to heaven, to the pearly gates. You're going to get there before me, not meaning you're going to die first. That sounded like a threat. Um, <laughs> but dude, I walked in there. It looked like a Bible bookstore, a Christian bookstore puked all over their room, like they raided it. I walked in. They had the potpourri smell. Come on. Some of you know what I'm talking about. They, like all of them have that. It's like, is that a requirement? It's like, well, that's refreshing. It smelled like it. And then they had the, the Bible bookstore framed pictures on the wall. And I was looking at them, which is with a buddy. I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep and lions that they don't own? I'd never seen somebody have a framed picture of an animal they didn't own hanging up on the wall with Bible verses. And they had some picture of a shepherd kid with a lamb and a kid and a cobra. I'm like, oh my gosh. They even had Christian breath mints. Did you guys know we have our own breath mints? They're called testaments. Some of you are like, huh? What? Google it after you'll get it, okay? Don't ever try one unless you want to see what peppermint and cyanide would taste like together. And then somebody came up from the basement. The guy that invited me said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Join us down in the basement. You know, we're studying. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a great beginning of a horror movie. You know, we're going to sacrifice a chicken down there. And so we went down there, got in a circle. We're all supposed to be reading out of 1 Corinthians. I'd never cracked a Bible, really, a day in my life. I can't find 1 Corinthians. So they get to me. I read a verse from 1 Chronicles about some dude getting impaled. Not 1 Corinthians, in case you're wondering. And, and they said, where are you? I said, um, well, I'm in... First Chronicles, they said, oh, you're in the Old Testament. And I was like, is there a new one? <laughs> like, I didn't know we had updated 2.0. <laughs> Honestly, I thought the Bible was a bunch of boring, old, dusty, irrelevant books written by a bunch of dead people from the Middle East. That's what I thought. But the more that I ended up going there, the more that I ended up like reading, I realized that the Jesus portrayed in the first four books of the New Testament what we call the Gospels or the accounts of Jesus' life, the good news, that they did not accurately reflect who Jesus was. Okay? I saw somebody presented in the first four books of the New Testament, somebody who had very deep theological convictions and very real expectations for how we should live our lives, for how we should pursue holiness and how we should treat other people. But I also saw somebody at the same time who had, very deep, uh, who had very deep and personal relationships with people that the religious elite of his day would have nothing to do with. And I love how Pastor Andy Stanley puts it. He's a pastor down in Atlanta. He says that people who are nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back. 
And I was like, oh man, I can get on board with that. I don't want the sheep picture. And I still don't have one in my house. But I'm like, everything else I can get on board with. And, um, you know, so I started, I, I knew that it was going to be a big deal uh, to my parents, you know, if I became a Christian. Um, I knew that I would have to study and see what the Bible had to say about sexuality, marriage, relationships, intimacy, and I did. And I came to two conclusions that I still hold today. And you may not like one, uh, you may not like the other, you may not like both, or you might like both. Um, Let's find out, who knows, right? Um, Here's the first conclusion that I came to. That God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in marriage between one man and one woman And that's how he designed sexual intimacy to be expressed. And any expression of sexual intimacy outside of that is not part of what he designed sexual intimacy for and how he designed it to be expressed. But I came to this other conclusion as well, that a theological conviction is never a catalyst to devalue another human being. That your biblical beliefs must never be the basis to mistreat another person. Did you know that you can have correct doctrine or you can be orthodox but be an absolute heretic by the way you treat people? And here's what I want to say. And and you may or may not, we'll get back to my story in a second, but I'm going to park here for a minute. Here's what I want to say. If you and I take sides between this side or that side. You're saved, I'm sure. I'm saved. See you in heaven. But here's the deal. When we take sides, we're being unchristlike, and we're being weak and we're being lazy. You're like, how can you say I'm being unchristlike? Well, it's pretty simple. John chapter 1 verses 14 and 17 say that Jesus came full of both grace and truth at the same time. You see that reflected throughout his life. Like in John chapter 3, when he talks to Nicodemus, he starts out with telling him the truth, and he ends with grace. In the next chapter, in John 4, he starts off talking to this woman by the well with grace, and he ends in truth. And then when he you know, defends the woman who was caught in adultery and about ready to be stoned by an angry crowd, and he like basically gets her out of trouble... He looks at her, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin, grace and truth. And when we take sides between the two, we're not being Christ-like. We're not. We're being weak. You're like, how can you say that? Well, it's pretty simple. You know what it's like? It's like carrying around a rubber band by one side. Have you ever seen somebody just hold a rubber band like this? No, you'd slap them. Try to bring them to reality, right? There's no purpose in somebody holding a rubber band like this because it's flimsy, it's weak, and there's no power. That's what people are like when they say, I'm all about the grace, but they have no truth. And you know these people. These are the people that are like, God loves you, God loves everybody. Their version of God is a cross between Olaf and Buddy the Elf. 
They don't want to talk about any, have any tough conversations. They sweep everything underneath the rug. You know what they're like? They're like my kids when we play a board game, like Monopoly. Okay, rules are merely suggestions. You don't have to keep them until you start losing. Then you can make up new rules. I never knew that. Okay, these people are annoying. However, those of you who are just all about the truth but no grace, you're annoying. Maybe even a little bit more so because you think you're right and you're wrong. Because you can be right over here, wrong over here. That makes you wrong, period. Okay? But, like, it's our secret. Shh. Nobody's telling you that you're wrong. But you really are. You know these people, right? These are the people, when you're in a small group or a Bible study, they believe that God sent them there to correct you and other people. You're like, well, I think Paul said this in Colossians. They're like, no, that's Philippians. It's like, well, remember Moses in that story in Numbers? No, that's Exodus. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. It's like, I love to be corrected. Personally, myself, I never knew how much I love to be corrected until I got married. My wife is a walking DMV manual. Be driving, she's like, you know you're going five miles over the speed limit. Yep. Thank you. You're still going five miles over. Oh, it's going to be a great trip. Thank you. Okay? Some of you are like this. But here's the deal. There's no power there. So where's the power? The power, when you stand for grace and truth, where does the power lie? The power lies in the tension of the two. There's no power when you take sides. You're annoying. When you stand for both, you're uncomfortable, but you are stronger than what you know. Okay, and, and why did I call people lazy who take sides? Because it takes no effort on your part to be all about the grace if that's naturally how you are. It takes no effort on your part to be all about the rules if that's how you naturally are. But it takes all the effort in the world and dependence on God for you and I to stretch over to the other side. Listen, if you want to be a Christian, you better get used to tension. If you don't like tension, you might want to find a different religion, bruh. Like, like, I'm serious. Like, there's tension all over our faith. We just don't think about it. Right, let me give you an example, okay? We believe in one God but the Trinity. Hello. You ever, yeah, there you go. You ever try to explain the Trinity to someone? That's fun. I had a guy who wanted me to listen to his sermon. A friend of mine, he was preaching it. I listened to it. It was good, except for the part when he tried to describe the enemy, or the Trinity. He described the Trinity as an egg. He said, well, you know, you know, the Father is the outer shell, and the Son is the egg white, and the Holy Spirit, well, he's the yolk that just covers everything. I called him, and I was like, don't ever describe God as an egg again. God is not an egg. He is not a pizza divided into three parts. He's not ice, water, and steam, okay? He's not a three-leaf clover. What do you do with the stem? It's, it is a tension to be managed. There's tensions. We believe love God, love people. We believe the Bible is inspired of God, but he used sinful, messy people to write it. We believe that God is in control, but he gives us free will. We believe, I think... 
that Jesus is fully God and fully human. We believe that death and evil were defeated at the cross and the resurrection, but they're not yet destroyed. You can be a good preacher and still have hair. (laughs) There is tension all throughout your faith. Why is it that we run from the tension of grace and truth? I'll tell you exactly why. You want to know why? Here it is. Because all these other tensions I describe, you you are not emotionally attached to. I bet you you have never stayed up all night worrying about what we call, big fancy theological phrase coming, the hypostatic union. About Jesus being fully God and fully human. But I bet you have stayed up all night worrying about somebody you love. Worrying about a friend. Why? Because you have emotional attachment. We run from the pain of emotion. Because it hurts too much. And when I was studying, I felt this tension. There's something dawned on me. Why do I need to try to resolve it and figure it out? Here's the deal, people. You manage tensions and you solve problems. You get into big trouble when you try to manage a problem and solve a tension. You understand? And grace and truth is a tension to be managed. And if you don't like how this feels... You probably should try not to love people anymore because this tension is love. Love is difficult. Love is hard. Go read 1 Corinthians 13. When Paul wrote that, he wasn't thinking about weddings. He wasn't thinking, you know what? We're going to throw in a good, some verses for a wedding here. I've got to insert that in here before I get to tongues. You look at that. That's difficult. Whenever you love, you get hurt. That doesn't mean we don't love. And then after that, like, I woke up one morning, and I felt like I had, you know, become a Christian. I was attending my friend Greg's church for a youth group in the evening in Columbia, Missouri, and I called him, kind of frantic. I said, Greg, I think I've turned Christian. I wanted it off me or whatever, you know. I was like, ah. And so he said, great, let's go eat Chinese food and I'll baptize you. There you go. That was an axe too. And so uh, like a week, like less than a week later, I was at this youth event called CIY Christian Youth. This guy named Brian Schwarberg was my small group leader. And, and I, and that's how I got to know him. And I saw that not all Christians were insane. Maybe a little, but not all. Christians were totally crazy. And then I was nervous to tell my parents because if you can imagine how a uh, student, college student who is, uh, relates or identifies as LGBTQ or same-sex attracted feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian who had changed his view on sexuality to my three activist gay parents. And they kicked me out. Eventually, they let me back in, but I had to stay with different friends during that time. It's funny. I, I will speak at student conferences or events some of the times, and I'll touch on this subject, and inevitably, I'll have a student come up and say, you have no idea what it feels like to be rejected. My parents kicked me out. You don't know what that feels like. I'm like, actually, I know exactly how that feels. And, and I'm like, here you go, little buddy. Let me, let me let you in on something about life that you need to learn real quick. And if you don't learn this, you are going to have big problems in life. First of all, be careful what you call oppression. 
I've been to Haiti. I've been to third world countries. You can still buy a cheeseburger here for less than a dollar. Second thing is this. Whatever oppression you may feel from others never gives you permission to pay that oppression back to them or anyone else. Because then in a sick, twisted way, you're imitating them more than Jesus. And you become just like the people that hurt you. Eventually, my parents let me back in to live with them. I went to Bible college um, in southern Missouri, Joplin. Anybody ever been to Joplin before? Yeah, yeah, don't go. Um, You know how, like, a lot of family trees will just bloom and blossom? In in that area, it's just a straight line going up in the air. Um, You don't believe me, go hang out there someday. Um, I got to preach at different churches. I preached at my first church my second week of my freshman year. I was so excited. Um, I preached for, like, seven minutes because I got nervous. There were six people in the audience the youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group of like 40-year-olds, I think. The second church I preached at, I actually just posted on my Instagram not too long ago. It was um, a church in the middle of Missouri, about an hour away. I preached there for 18 months. We were the largest church per capita in the world at that time. We had 50 people in the town. 25 of them were in our church. Half our town was one to Christ right there. Statistics, they rule. And so we, we ended up, um, you know, after 18 months, I got my mom to come to church with me. And, you know, I was so excited. And uh, the next Sunday, I showed up to preach. She didn't come with me, but there were two elders waiting for me on the doorstep. And they said, Caleb, we want to talk to you. And I said, okay. And they took me to the back room, which I didn't even know our church had a back room. Um, and it was filled with really old, uh, dusty children's ministry toys and dolls and porcelain dolls. Um, It was actually terrifying. Um, And the children and the town had no children in it. Um, It was like a Nightmare on Elm Street setting. It was like, (laughs) there's no need for this. I wanted to get out of that room as soon as possible. They said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, excuse you? We don't like those people. And I said, oh, okay, well, I quit, like, now, like, done, finished, finito. He's like, no, you got to preach today. And I said, oh, you don't want me to preach after this conversation. Like, I'm just warning you. And he's like, no, we need you to preach. We need a sermon. I said, oh, you're going to get one. Listen, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, there was a phenomenal musician still around that you guys need to listen to here and there. And I know I'm going to get criticized for this. Hopefully, we're all on the same page so we don't like Nickelback, okay? But back, I should have heard cheering and people coming forward at that point. <laughs> don't ever listen to their music. But Bon Jovi, a couple of my people. I don't know if you're telling the truth. You're too excited, but still, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But dude, he has this great song called Blaze of Glory that if you're going to go out, and that's what I thought about my last sermon. I preached everything I could about grace and truth and love and principle and mercy. And I walked out of there. And as I was walking out, I said, Lord, if you ever allow me to be able to preach in a church, I want to be in a church filled with messy, broken 
people, people that are cutting, people that have had abortions, people that are in relationships I may not understand or agree with, people who don't understand or agree with me, people who are abusing drugs, people who are addicted, people who are alcoholics, people who have no money, people who have all this money, people who are on their seventh marriage, okay? Because people, that is what the church looks like. The church is a beautiful, messy mosaic of broken lives that God unites together to glorify himself. God is glorified the most through our mess and us actually struggling rather than performing and trying to put on a good show like I'm a good Christian. I go to church all the time. Yeah, but the way you treat people says otherwise. The way you gossip about other people says otherwise. The way you say those people or them or they, okay? No offense, you're more of those people than those people are. You see, I don't believe for a second that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for a place masquerading as a church, but it's really a members-only country club where you have to agree with us to be with us. That is a Pharisee factory. And those churches are dying. And unless they change, that's not a bad thing. Because we need people to see Jesus in here. Not some pseudo picture of Jesus. The real deal. And so when I graduated, I left. I moved to Los Angeles in 99. Okay. I was there for 11 years at a church called Shepherd on staff. Met my wife there. She's beautiful. She's taller, tan. She goes to the gym every day. She's on an eating plan. I think you can tell I watch a lot of Netflix. <laughs> She's got a six-pack. She is a muy caliente Latina. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor looked like a cross between Gru, Uncle Fester, and Dr. Evil. I mean... She is a lucky lady. This is her eye candy whenever she wakes up in the morning, right here. We had our two kids, and while we were in Los Angeles, my mom's partner, she ended up getting sick with cancer in 2005. My mom called me and told me that Vera was on her last leg. And so I flew back there for about four days, and I made a deal with God. I know you're not supposed to, but I think he was cool with it this time. I said, I'm not going to try to force a conversation about Jesus but I'm going to rely on you to open, to open up the door so I think I was there four nights five days actually and so we had our kitchen our dining room set up into a makeshift hospice room and she was laying in there and um, she was just in and out of sleep all the time and on the very last night I was sitting there with her at like 1am um, she was in and out of sleep and um, no open door so far. And I was arguing with God in my head. Have you ever, if you follow Jesus, have you ever had one of those times when you're arguing with God? You're like, help. And she opened up her eyes and looked at me and asked this question. I kid you not. Caleb, what do you think is on the other side? And I looked at her and I said, Vera, Jesus is. And if you trust Jesus right now, this same grace that saves you now will take you into the next world. And she looked at me and she said, no. She 
she said, you want to know what I think about people like you? I think you're weak. I think you use Jesus as a crutch. I don't think you can make it through life on your own. And I said, well, you're halfway to salvation then because I am weak. And by the way, Jesus is not my crutch. He's my wheelbarrow. Okay, he's driving my car. I'm not even in the back seat. He's got me in the trunk, bound and gagged with duct tape and chloroform. Because I'm too weak to live my life on my own. Unless a miracle happens, she said no. And my mom went through, went through a, a depression because they had been together for 22 years. Vera was basically like a second mom. We didn't get along that well, but she still was. My mom started drinking a lot. Um, then in 2010, my family and I, we moved to Dallas, Texas. You're like, why? I'm like, because everybody's got to live in purgatory at some point. Um, in their life. It's a hostile environment. You got Jerry Jones there. You got Mark Cuban there. It's a, there's a lot of hostility for those of us who are not from Texas. Um, not for those of you who are, are, jump on the bandwagon. Um, but anyway, so I was there. I preached at the church for three and a half years. And during that time, my mom and dad separately moved down there to be closer to our family. That They lived within a 10-mile radius that had never happened since I was a kid. I didn't know if like the walls would bleed or pig would fly. There'd be some woman singing outside. Like I had no clue like what was going to happen. And then they said, can we start attending your church that you preach at? And I said, you want to attend my church? You know what I believe about? They said, yeah. I said, well, come on over. And people were actually nice to them as opposed to how the people at this smaller church treated my mom. And we moved back to Southern California in 2013 in the summer. And two or three weeks before we moved back, separately of one another at the ages of 69 and 70, my mom and dad both gave their lives to Jesus. And I asked them, I'm I'm like, how did this happen? And in so many words, both of them told me this, that people treated us like people, not like projects. Right? You can tell the difference when somebody's treating you like a project or you can tell how somebody feels when they see that you're trying your new um, uh, like Kirk Camera evangelistic ninja moves out on them. You know what people want? They want a friend. They want somebody to sit with them. They want somebody to feel with them. And I think about my mom and dad. Is everything perfect now? No. My dad has dementia turning into Alzheimer's. My mom is dying of cancer. How's all, all that go together? I don't know. My, my, you know. my mom, dad, they believe in Jesus. They don't believe everything I do. Are they same-sex attracted? Yes. Are they in relationships? No. Do they go to church or Bible study when they can? Is our relationship perfect? No. How's all that fit together? I don't know. It is a tension to be managed. It is not a problem to be solved. And even if I could solve it, I couldn't, and neither could you. As I already said, you all are messes. Isn't that what you had to admit when you repented and followed Jesus? You can't live your life on your own. You messed it up. You need him. So how are you going to fix somebody else's life? You can't. You know what you can do? You can walk alongside people. You can be fully present. And you can be a vessel of God's love. Thanks for joining us today. 
If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.